Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is a fifth-year PhD student in theater and performance study, Kari Barclay, who is also the other co-chair in GSC. Last month, we spoke to Will Paisley. Hi, Kari. Hey, Cricket. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Doing uh, did a little bit of playwriting this morning and enjoying the sunshine we got. Are you in California right now? Yeah, I'm in Berkeley. Hey. Um, <laughs> sort of enemy to... territory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would you mind telling us a little more about yourself? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm in theater and performance studies. I'm a playwright, theater director, researcher, and educator. I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area, from Bethesda, Maryland. Grew up immersed in the arts and politics. After undergrad, I came out to Stanford, and I've been here for the past four-plus years. been on the Graduate Student Council for three years at this point, and this year I decided to be co-chair to really, in this strange time, be able to advocate for my community and those connections across the university. That is super cool. And what got you into the ASSU in the first place? It was a question of thinking about recalibrating Stanford culture. For grad students in particular, it can be a challenging place sometimes to be at Stanford. There's just a lot of academic pressure. Social community is a challenge. So I got on the Grad Student Council with the goal of trying to help students form community, trying to advocate at the university for topics that I cared about, originally very interested in helping graduate student parents, advocating for undocumented students right after the election of Donald Trump and supporting mental health at the university. ASSU seemed like a good way to do that. I think a lot of people, especially recently, have been concerned about mental health on campus. Last time, Will was talking about how the GSC is trying to do a lot more joint resolutions with the Senate because there's a lot more power when the faculty Senate can see that both graduates and undergraduates care about the same things. Is that still happening? Yeah, absolutely. Recently, we passed a series of five joint resolutions around finding solutions to anti-Black racism on campus. So both some resolutions around policing, a resolution around the departmentalization of African and African-American studies, and redirection of resources to Black and African diasporic communities on campus. What has been the reaction so far from the Faculty Senate? Anything? We, we have yet to see, uh, see what that shape that's going to take. Uh, the sense I've gotten from the faculty is that people are in general very supportive. The only questions are where the university resources are going to come from, and that's a decision that faculty have to coordinate in collaboration with university leadership. Bring up another joint resolution we just had passed this past week was around online learning and accommodations for students in different time zones. And this is something that I care a lot about several of my friends are international students. I'm particularly worried about the international students who have been unable to return to the U.S. or don't want to return to the U.S. So we passed a resolution that's going to the faculty senate that's going to encourage professors to include accommodations on their syllabi and to make that a part of how they teach this quarter online. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. So I receive accommodations through the OAE because I am blind. And I'm actually surprised that they're not providing any sort of accommodations for international students or students in different time zones or anything. That seems not great. Am I getting the wrong impression, though? I think it's not great either. The way that Stanford's university structure is, is that it gives a lot of autonomy to faculty. And essentially, 
the idea is that the administration can't force faculty to implement any accommodations that they don't want to or that they're not legally obliged uh, to take. I still think the accommodations should exist. And I think even if the university doesn't want to force them, we can have faculty adopt them voluntarily. And yes, I have had, I've seen faculty include some material on their syllabi. So my hope is that faculty will do the right thing and make sure that members of our community are still considered members of our community and are, are still centered and don't have to feel like they're marginalized in their education. Right, because we talk about, quote unquote, the Stanford community. A lot of times we're thinking about people in the U.S. because that's certainly, you know, I can speak for myself and say that that's more what I'm familiar with. But I do know a student who's in Switzerland right now, and it's really hard for her. So ideally, then, would you prefer for all classes to be asynchronous? I think synchronous learning, I think some learning should be synchronous when it's possible. And I think that should be the default for many types of education. You know, in theater and performance studies, we're very much about presence, right? How can we get actors to listen to each other? So that's very important. It might be a little bit less important in a course like CS, where you can record a lecture, things are a little bit more flexible. So I think synchronous learning is very important. But even if you have a synchronous class, you can still offer discussion sections that work with different time zones that make things a little more easy. You can record classes for folks to listen to later on. There are a lot of ways to make courses into a kind of hybrid synchronous, asynchronous model if you do have those students who are in wildly different time zones so that they don't have to take courses at 3 a.m. That makes a lot of sense. So then what do you think would be fair for a class that's like an improv theater or something like that? Yeah. For example, one of the folks in my department is currently based in India and is dealing with an enormous time difference. And if she were taking improv, I would give her the option of, hey, you can come in at the at the usual class time if you want. But if the, if the lack of sleep is like getting too much or, or things are odd, feel free to see a recording of the class and submit your own little improv exercise via video in an asynchronous way. You can make it a hybrid so that people don't have to come in like every class session if the time zone is particularly strenuous and can do some of the exercises and materials at a different time. Or if I were a professor with TAs, I'd see if I could create a little discussion section or version of it in which folks who were in far off time zones could gather together to do some, some improv games. Yeah, I think that would be super cool. Back to something that I was saying earlier about the Office of Accessible Education. They mm. seem to concentrate on students with disabilities, but in an environment like this, do you think that they should cover students who are in exceptional circumstances like time zones? I love framing things in terms of access. And I think when we talk about access, it's a great way about thinking like in coalition in terms of thinking both through disability and other forms of social marginalization that affect folks. Something that's on my mind is students who are in unstable living conditions right now. If people are in their own household and your household is economically uncertain, that's going to affect your education. An accessible education means helping build conditions in which you can still succeed academically, even if folks are facing barriers in sort of the rest of their life. And so for me, yeah, access includes accommodations like that. So, I mean, for example, the summer I was teaching a course on devised theater, which is a group of nine students that I had working across four different time zones, creating a production on Zoom. It was incredible. And it was all live. The whole show happened wow. live every, every night. And it was, it was fantastic. But at the same time, you know, some of my students, would have unstable internet or some days would have to turn their video off because they were getting migraines. 
part of creating access in education is saying, thank you for communicating with me what you need to succeed in this course. Yes, turn off your video for today. We'll do some work on audio. Or, you know, your family is moving right now because it's a really challenging time. Take a few days off and we'll come back. We'll make sure to communicate that with everybody who needs to know your scene partners. And it's going to be part of our process and you are still a part of this course community. So that's to me what access is. Well, uh, yeah, I'm curious, are there any things that you would consider through OSE that should be applied to the broader student population right now? Or what would expanding access mean for you? I'm curious. Um, well, so the OSE is in charge of student engagement stuff. Are you talking about... Oh, OAE. I'm sorry. I'm thinking yeah. OAE. I'm, I apologize. Got that little acronym wrong. Oh, no. You're totally fine. There are way too many acronyms at Stanford. I get it. I think that's a tough one. I think that there are already a lot of issues with inaccessibility of technologies. And I think that that's mm. just kind of contributed to by the fact that if you're in a different time zone and something doesn't work for you, it's a lot more difficult to get a hold of the professors. Interactive discussion boards have been very helpful, but mm. some of them have not been particularly usable by people who just don't have much bandwidth. So I think that either Stanford could provide a little budget to get a better router, or yeah. I think that they should limit themselves to certain discussion boards that don't require a lot of bandwidth or a lot of work to get working. Also, that there should be a little more flexibility. When I was looking through <laughs> each syllabus this quarter, there was no mention of international students, except one syllabus said, if you have issues with time zones or something, email me, basically. But I think that the thing is, students find a lot of comfort in knowing the kind of response that they're going to get. If someone is told, hey, email me, and someone else is told, hey, email me, then the professor could easily give them two extremely different responses based on implicit right. biases. I think that there really should be some uniform policy, if not across the university, then across the teaching staff. I'm still learning about like what access means in my courses, but something that is important for me is that students don't feel the need to feel like they're having to go out of their way to ask for access, that there's always kind of an invitation to a discussion there, and it's not, it, that there is that material on the syllabus, that there is, it is part of the conversation so that student doesn't feel the need, that the burden is all on them to make the education work for them. So that syllabus language is so important, again, for making students be able to, like, invited and like, they are being considered and they are a part of the community. You were talking earlier about the fact that GSC is passing joint resolutions with the Senate. What would be your ideal outcome? The key, just in terms of the way that my sense of how the faculty Senate operates within the university, is that they, they essentially are their own advocacy arm in the same way that grad the Grad Student Council is an advocacy arm for grad students and ASSU is an advocacy arm for students in general. And so if we have a priority, like the departmentalization of AAAS, and the faculty senate is in support of that, then it becomes much more likely for the university, university leadership to allocate resources to a new department. Our hope is that through the faculty senate, we can clear one of the hurdles to, to get changes implemented on campus. And through the faculty senate, that's how you get things more of a priority through the different vice provosts, provosts, it's one more set of stakeholders that you have to get in any initiative that you're fighting for at the university. What is one issue that you're super passionate about? And this can be on campus or off campus, whichever you think. I care a lot about affordability and some of the easing of people's financial uncertainty. And 
as somebody who very much cares about mental health, and that was something I thought about and I mentioned earlier, one of the main things that, that harms mental health is like the inability to feel like you can pay your bills, you can pay your rent, you can get by at the university. And that was one of the main things that motivated me to get to the grad student council within my first year. One of my big priorities was getting subsidies for childcare. So grad students who have kids are able to research here, work here, study here, and their families an environment that they can get by. And that's important to me because my mom was pregnant with me while writing her dissertation. I know firsthand some of the challenges is uh, being a grad student and a parent, and I guess you could say I was uh, meant for the PhD within the womb. But uh, essentially, that taught me working with those students who were facing the financial burdens of really trying to get by. Taught me some of the precarity that a lot of grad students face. So this year, COVID is exacerbating all sorts of inequalities that we have, and so affordability, uh, financial access, to me means both support for initiatives like the Basic Needs Coalition and the money that they've been raising for students who are trying to meet their financial needs right now and thinking about how for students whose progress towards their degree has been delayed because of COVID, especially within the PhD, an additional year of funding would be a huge boost to people who are facing an uncertain job market right now. There are people I know, for example, who just, you can't do your research trip or you can only go into your lab twice a week. And to expect folks to be able to get out of here with a degree in the same time and to enter a job market where there are very few academic jobs and jobs outside of academia have their own, uh, are their own can of worms. And just that additional year of funding, it would be enormous. And that's a priority that we as a GSC are advocating for this year. Good. A couple things. First of all, it is awesome that you come from a line of doctors. What was your mom's PhD in? She was doing microbiology at the University of Chicago. Ooh, very STEM-centered. It's very different from, from my work in theater. My mom always wanted me to be a scientist, but... Uh, well, I'm a scientist in acting, <laughs> yes. I, I always say I'm an experimental artist. Yes, I do exactly. plenty of experiments. Yeah. <laughs> you could say you're a social scientist, kind of. I am. I did study political science in undergrad, so I um, very much have that element of me. Are you with your family right now? No, I normally live in Berkeley during the academic year. Mm -hmm. Still staying out here with my housemates and trying to have a sense of continuity. Miss my family on the East Coast. But traveling is hard. I actually saw a thing yeah. on LinkedIn this morning, because LinkedIn is the absolute most reliable news source, of course. Uh, it sounds like there's kind of a mass exodus from the Bay Area. Have you, have you observed that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just this summer, I had three friends move out in quick succession. Oh. The housing market, rents have come down in, in some places, which oh, has been good. actually welcome in some ways. It's been it's been hard and social communities shifting a lot with the wildfire smoke. I don't know, it just makes it harder to be Californian these days. I think there was some thing in the Daily, either yesterday or today, saying that the Bay Area now has a barbecue flavor because it's so smoky. Um, oh gosh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was satire, but it's also kind of accurate. I um, during the during the height of the smoke, I did make um I did make chocolate chip cookies that were infused with hickory smoke. Oh my goodness. Um, it was so good, my lord. It was yeah, I was showing some existential despair, so I just had to make my smoky cookies, and I thought they were really good. <laughs> That's lovely. I really want your recipe at some point. Uh, I think affordability, especially when everyone's having to leave because of the wildfires and just because the Bay Area is mm -hmm. always expensive, is a huge concern yeah. right now, and graduating on time. This might seem slightly unrelated, but have you heard of sure. the Stanford Report? 
the Stanford report, yeah, the the that's the thing put together by the Office of Communications who do just news from Stanford? Yeah, something like that. It comes out every weekday. I encouraged my parents to subscribe to it a few years ago. And guess what? They put in my email address. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I've been getting it since freshman year, actually, and it has a lot of updates. Are you subscribed to it? Yes, I am. Yeah, so you see the kinds of things that are put in it, and and it doesn't seem to have that many updates about students. Would you agree? I never thought about it that way, but I think you're kind of right in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of foregrounding prominent research, announcing decisions that university leadership have made. Interesting. I did, I did see the other day one of my friends from undergrads just started his uh, PhD here and is running for city council in East Palo Alto, Antonio Lopez. It was neat. It was neat to see at least that grad student story represented and to see a familiar face who I didn't know was back at Stanford. Beyond that, and I did see that too, how many other grad student stories have you seen in the last, I don't know, let's say the last month? Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about grad students at the university are often kind of somewhat sidelined to undergrads in some ways, even though there are more of us. And so, yeah, I wish there were more in the report. What do you think about the daily? How many stories have you seen about grad students or grad student issues in the last month? It's getting better. Uh, if you'd asked me about last year, I would have said, oh, not, not as much. But I've been encouraged. It's nice. The daily, during the year, they always cover grad student council meetings. And uh, the Stanford Solidarity Network, which is a group of graduate student activists, they've been starting to publish op-eds. Good. So it feels like we get in there when we're proactive about getting in, but maybe not. Uh, there's not always there's not always that coverage elsewhere because most of the staff on the daily are undergrads. Do you think that there are any solutions to this? And the reason that I'm asking is because housing affordability and just affordability in general and anything to do with grad student issues really should be represented. Totally. Well, again, I have to give the daily a lot of credit is they've been trying to hire more graduate writers take more grad students, get more students on their staff. Um, it's hard because grad students are already have such a, often many of us have pretty wild schedules. They've been making an effort. And so the solution in part is to get grad writers on board. I'd also say just among grad students in general, one mode of civic engagement is just writing op-eds. And that doesn't just have to be for the daily, but I think people writing for their local papers, grad students, if you want your voice to be heard, it can be useful to, yeah, to submit your own materials, but yeah. What about in the Stanford report? Ah, in the Stanford report? Yeah, I mean, those, those writers, I'd say, just think about grad students, consider us. Maybe as a grad student council, we should do some work on reaching out to them to make sure we're getting our representation in there. That's a good point. I am definitely very aware of the fact that Stanford has a million grad schools and that there are way more grad school students than undergrads. I think the number for undergrads is about 8,000, give or take a couple hundred. That is a terrible mm -hmm. way to estimate. But it's about 8,000 and grad school students, how many do you think there are? Like 20,000? It's closer to 9,000. Okay, uh, well, somewhere. That's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, you're good. I'm, I'm glad you think we're everywhere, but uh, <laughs> we're... We, but we are, we do have more grad students than undergrads, which is very unique for a university. Most are, most are the opposite way around. I think that when undergrads are generally on campus and in our dorm communities and stuff, and when grad students have such busy schedules, it's hard for us to really get to know people mm. that well. Yesterday, I was in a class with, with some continuing study students, and we had everyone from a couple of high schoolers through people who are significantly older. 
And there were some grad students in there, but other than that, my classes don't really have many grad students except for TAs. So I'm wondering, how do you think the lack of representation of grad school students in campus media contributes to campus culture? Yeah, I think it really amplifies this perception that the fact that undergraduates in some ways are customers at the university, you know, that their tuition dollars are going going to the school kind of puts them as a big priority. And grad students, as folks who are, some of us also providing tuition dollars, some of us are providing our, some of us are more of kind of employees and providing providing our work to the university. The university might not feel as much pressure to cater to us or, or to offer resources to us. And because of that, sort of much less attention gets paid to us generally. And so then when you have things like the report not focusing on grad students, it can again make sure the topic of conversation and the resources are always directed towards undergrads. And I'd say the other thing that's really nice about getting media coverage for grad students is that, you know, many of us are kind of emerging leaders, right? We're on our way to become great researchers in our field. We're on our way into some pretty amazing professions and to make some cool contributions to the world. Giving that platform for people who are emerging into the, into the professional world can be really beneficial. And so I think there's, it's good to center the conversation on grad students. And that's also why I appreciate you doing this podcast and uh, making sure the grad voices are heard as well. One of my goals in doing this podcast was to just increase awareness of the fact that everyone exists. So especially yeah. now, I think it's, I think it's definitely appropriate. What about classes? There are so many classes that are geared towards undergrads, and there are so many classes that are for master's level students at least, and then undergrads take them sometimes, sometimes, yeah. you know, accidentally, and I was definitely not one of those. I took a constitutional law class last year, and I didn't realize it was primarily for law school students, and then I was oh, wondering, wow. yeah, and then I was wondering why there was so much work, and then I discovered this after the ad dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, wow. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But do you yeah. think there should be more like cross-level academic engagement? I think it depends. It depends on the department, depends on the field. I love some of the courses that I've done that have been just grad students. You know, it's been nice to have things entirely at my level and like you can get to a different level of depth sometimes. Mm -hmm. But for undergrads, I would definitely say take those upper level courses that are going to be cross-listed as grad courses. I definitely did that a ton as an undergrad. I was at Duke and like you, I took courses in the law school and the courses that were alongside grad students and they became, became role models. They became people yeah. who I really looked up to. So yeah, just challenge yourself and take those cross-listed ones. And then as a grad student, I've taken some really fantastic courses with undergrads that have been cross-listed. And I think that the nice thing about that as a grad student is that it always does feel like there is an element of mentorship or teaching in there. So when I'm taking a course on playwriting, for example, and I'm able to have the experience of having worked as a director on paid productions, things like that, I'm able to give some advice on, okay, here's how you navigate the professional world to undergrads who are kind of just going off into that world. And so I think that mutual learning for, as a grad student, learning how to teach, learning how to mentor others, and as an undergrad, kind of challenging yourself and meeting new people is really exciting. So I recommend it to a lot of folks. <laughs> I was reading something the other day about a lot of new frosh and other uh, undergrads looking for housing that isn't with their families when they're able to do that. Mm -hmm. Do you think a good way to get that mentorship in might be if undergrads were looking for grad student roommates who lost the other people that were once in their nests? 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, if people were open to it, I'd say I'd say go for it. Yeah. The amazing thing about grad students is our ages vary wildly. I emerged on the younger side of things, coming straight from um, straight from undergrad, but they're they're grad students in their late 30s, early 40s. It, yeah, it's it's fascinating living with somebody with a different level of life experience. And I mean, I think it's interesting. And I mean, right now with campus housing, it's definitely a lot more mixed since. The university is trying not to use the dorm type housing and it's using predominantly for undergrads the grad style apartment housing. We're having a bit more of that contact anyway, and so that's exciting. I think that's really interesting that this grad student housing was built right before all the grad students left and then we ended up using it for undergrads, but uh, the timing was yeah. good because at least we have accommodations for that. It's, I, there are a good number of grad students on campuses here. Yes, there's some empty units, but it's, I mean, for the midst of a pandemic, it's really. It's really incredible to have so many so many students around, and for the folks who are on campus, I know it's been we're getting to a point where people can experience that community a little bit more these days. So, that's about all the questions I have for you. But my last question for you is: What do you think that faculty and students in general can do? to work in a way that's a little bit less back and forth, I guess, because it seems like sometimes mm. the Senate will produce a resolution and the faculty says, oh no, you need to do this in order for us to pass it, or they just frown on it so much that the resolution doesn't end up going very far. Oh, interesting. Well, I, I do like the, I think it's important for us grad students to be in conversation with, well, I mean, for students in general to be in conversation with faculty kind of early on, We've had the kind of alliance that emerged with Stand For, which is the organization that David Palumbo Liu helps with, and he's a great ally. He's been a great ally on the faculty senate for student concerns. So that would be beneficial. Also, just thinking as well, just within your department. So, for example, at one point, folks were considering discontinuing the off-campus subsidized housing program, which was with the construction of EVGR. They were saying, oh, well, now we have all this on-campus housing. Oh, no. Why do we need the off-campus housing? But that was a problem because EVGR, by and large, is much more expensive than the off-campus housing option. It was a problem, and fortunately, it was great. My department chair, Matthew Smith, was able to convey student needs and student concerns up to the Dean of Nays and Sciences. And so through that, uh, we were able to, you know, I, I felt like it was nice having faculty allies. Oh, yeah, ultimately, we still got, we still have that subsidized housing for the next year, at least. So that's been good. So yeah, I mean, reach out to folks in your individual department. There have been some faculty who've been very supportive of sixth year funding. They're continuing to write to the university to ask for support. I know art and art history has provided sixth-year funding to their PhDs if they are unable to find other grants and funding sources. Yeah, faculty have been open to really taking student needs into consideration. Kind of be that squeaky wheel, yeah. start that conversation, make it happen. My actual last question, what do you think you're going to be doing after Stanford? So I am really passionate about teaching theater uh, within higher education. So. All throughout this fall, I'm applying to teaching jobs around the country, and in particular, I really want to teach acting, teach directing. Those are practices that I always infuse with social justice. And so aiming to take that next step, continuing my artistic work, really hoping to pass on the great education that I've gotten and come up with some innovative techniques to transform it. So that's, that's where I'm headed to next. I love that so much. So thank you for joining us today, Corey. 
Can I give a little plug for how to get involved with the GSC or kind of hear more yeah, about what absolutely. we do? If folks want to get on our listserv, uh, we're at gsc-members at list.stanford.edu. You can just sign up on the little mailing list manager at Stanford. Hear about our weekly meetings. They're every Wednesday. We love when people in the public come and talk to us. So it feels good to be able to be so engaged with the grad student community at this time. And yeah, take part. Join us. Yay. All right. Well, thank you so much cool. for joining us today, Kari. Absolutely. My pleasure, Cricket. Thanks so much. So that was Kari Barclay, who is a fifth-year PhD student in theater and performance studies, and this has been another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman, and if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to email communications at assu.stanford.edu. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.